different, live different. Think different, live different. This is a very important message because we are living in a culture. We are living in a time in, in the world, a time that I've never seen before, where we are so hold up in our perspective and the way that we see things and what we believe that we literally reject outright anyone or anything that conflicts with what we already believe. In fact, I actually read a survey about how the more we argue online, the more we, we go back and forth with people who disagree with us, the more we actually hedge ourselves in our view. And so all the arguing that we're making and all the division that's happening is just actually making us more resolute about our side. And here's the thing. God has a funny way of being not on our side. He is God above all sides. And he's not interested in teaming up with you to beat them. He's interested in beating the sin that's in you so that you can join him. This is how Christians do it. I want you to write this down right off the bat. Write this down. Christians do not think like non-Christians. We are not going to think like this world. Right, left, center. Doesn't matter. Because we're not in the business of joining them. We're in the business of surrendering to him. And this is so important in a culture that is so divisive. Uh, you, you know that you don't actually become a Christian until you change your mind. You know that? You don't actually become a Christian until you change your mind. The word for changing your mind in the, in the New Testament is the word repent. Somebody say repent. Repent, literally in the Greek text, metanomai, means change the way you think. Jesus' first message, his first sermon, it was only nine words long. <laughs> and it says this, Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nine words. First word on the list. Repent. Jesus' first words to humankind. Change your thinking. Change how you think. Well, about what? About everything. About him, God. Let's start there, because the Bible begins with God, not you. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You did not create this universe, therefore you do not get to call the shots. God created the universe. You either believe that or you don't. And I found that the people that don't believe that make themselves the center of the universe. And we are called to change how we think about God, how we think about the world, how we think about our bodies, how we think about our friends, how we think about our spouse, how we think about the people who are different than us. Everything is on the table when we repent. It's amazing to me though, we are in a culture that only wants to go places and be with people that already agree with them. I only watch news that I agree with. I only listen to preachers that I like. I only listen to people who I already believe what they believe. And I never let anybody challenge what I think. We got an email this week. We got an email. And these emails come to us on a regular basis. But this one was particularly funny. So always be careful of sending the church an email. Your email might show up in a sermon. So here we go. Here's the, sir, here's the email. Let's put it up on the screen. This lady, she emailed us and she said, 
Look, look at it. Hi. Just wondering if the church is pro-vaccine, pro-choice, and pro-inclusion. Looking for a new religious home, but most are too right-wing radical, which, which as, <laughs> has, has nothing in common with God's... She forgot the apostrophe. <laughs> I'm offended. I don't agree with your grammar. No. Uh, God's teachings. And then I blacked out. I was so tempted to leave her name in there, but she sent it from her iPhone. Kind of lazy if you ask me anyway. She didn't even see that down. Even, didn't even sit down at the desktop computer. What was she doing then? As she was driving, hi, just wondering. <laughs> I could just see this person doing that. So I said to the team, they were like, oh, we don't like to share these emails with you. But the guy sent to one of our teammates, he sent me the email. I'm like, ooh, I'm so glad you did. Here's what I want you to send back. And so I, so I put this email together. Let's put that one up on the screen. I said, hi. Uh, I said, hi. I can't speak for everyone in my church, but I am very pro-choice regarding the vaccine. And no matter your choice about the vaccine, I'd be happy to include you in one of our weekend services. Sincerely, your future irritating pastor. I like that answer. But you know, you know what we are? We are the litmus test generation. The litmus test generation. What is litmus test? It means that I will not agree, I will not be in relationship with you unless I first uh, vet you and find out if you already believe what I believe. That's a dangerous place to be. That assumes that you are always right all the time. And you're not. But this is America 101 right now. This is a world 101. I'm right. Why? Because I am. Says who? Like no matter how you vote, there's always about 50% of the country who disagrees with you. Like that's, that's a reality. That's a fact. And I know it's hard to believe, but you might be sitting next to someone that's totally different than you right now in our churches. And can I tell you that I am so glad that people who disagree come to our church. Look, that was my response. You notice I didn't say, well, this is what our church believes. I didn't say that. I said, this is what I think. And you don't have to think what I think. There's nothing in the Bible about vaccines. Okay, there's nothing in the Bible about, um, uh, what was the other thing? Oh, inclusivity. Well, inclusivity, there is a couple of things about the Bible, in the Bible about that. Uh, like, we don't include unrepentant sinners into leadership at our church. Like, that's something that the Bible clearly teaches. Like, if a man takes his father's wife as his own wife. Yeah, we wouldn't include some dirt bag like that into our church, yeah? We wouldn't be like, yay, celebration, pride, love is love, hashtag love wins. We wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't do that. He's sleeping with his mom. He should be shot. Like this is, this is the reality, though, that our world is so defunct in their brains because, because they, they assume that just because it feels like it's right, it's right. No, it's not. Amen. Your feelings are not right. Most of the time, your feelings are the most, most absurd part of you. One day you wake up, you're ready to just crash into a building. The next day you wake up, you're ready to conquer the world. I mean, that's... That's just feelings. You've got to change how you think if you want in on the movement of Jesus. Not the movement of Waters Church. My prayer is that the movement of Waters Church is on board with the movement of Jesus. But we've got some things we always have to change. And so do you and so does, so does everyone. He's right. 
The scripture says, let God be true and every man a what? A liar. There's only one truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And our church exists to help point people to that. So Ephesians chapter 4, stand with me as we read the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Here's what it says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Somebody say minds. They are darkened. Somebody say darkened. In their understanding, alienated. Somebody say alienated. From the life of God because of the ignorance. Somebody say ignorance. That is, due, that is in them due to the hardness. Somebody say hardness. Hardness of heart. Okay, I won't say, say anything anymore. Uh, they have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But, that's a, that's a big word right there in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth that is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through your deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth to his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold or an opportunity. Let, no, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. These are the things that Christians do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as children needing instruction. I pray that our hearts are open. Every heart, every mind is open today, whether they're in person or online, wherever they are. Open our hearts, open our eyes, change us. Help us to see Jesus, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. God bless you. Have a seat at all of our locations. Paul's talking about how we think in this passage. It was all about the mind. I don't know if you saw. That's why I, I asked you to repeat those words. The futility of their minds, darkening their understanding, ignorance, hardness of heart. Many times the Bible equates heart and mind together. And, and then there's this slow slide. I don't know if you saw that, but there's this slow slide. It's a slippery slope of sin. A slippery slope of thinking for unbelievers. So uh, point number one, kind of funny point, but just stay, stay with me. Point number one, write this down. This is your brain on drugs. Yeah, write that down. This is your brain on drugs. How, how many Gen Xers remember that old commercial with the guy with the frying pan? And remember he had the, the egg, right? And he's, this is your brain, and he had the frying pan. Cracks. This is your brain on drugs. What was the next line? Any questions? Right? Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that, this is what Paul's talking about. This is your brain on the drugs of this world. And not every drug is a chemical. Not every drug is a chemical. Verse 17 again, this I say, testifying to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
Their minds are futile. The word futile means wasted. They're wasting their minds. That's what drugs do. They waste your mind. And today there's any number of drugs you can put your mind toward. Some of you are on the drug of social media. Social media, social media, always on social media because you have no social life. You need to start facing people instead of facing this thing. You ever find yourself locked into like four hours of just scrolling, 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 and you're just like, I can't break away. This is a reality. This is a fact that the, the, uh, the developers of um, the apps now, you know, and I've talked about this many times, but how do you get new information on your phone? How do you do it? How do you get new information on your feed? How do you do it? How do you refresh it? Pull down and what? Release. And do you know that they tapped into the slot machine mindset for that activity on your phone? You literally have a virtual slot machine in your, in your phone. And it's always, to, so the pull down, did I win something? Pull down, did I win something? Pull down. And I've, I've, I've been to the casinos, okay, and I see people sitting at those slot machines for hours wasting their lives. Hoping for the next big thing. What are you waiting for? Like, you gotta, you gotta get away from that. You gotta face some people. You gotta look people in the eyes again. Some of you are uh, aware of the drug of pornography. It's a big drug in our culture right now. It's available also on the phone. It never is enough. It leads a man or a woman, both are susceptible, down this road to worse and worse things. It eliminates or it, it hinders intimacy between husband and wife. It, it actually causes uh, uh, you not to be able to respond physically to your spouse anymore. The more you do it, the worse you are. And it's a drug, and it's like you can't get out of it. Some of you are hooked on the drug of 24-hour cable news. You can't go to bed until you've heard what the other people did wrong today. You need to hear how bad they are so you can feel better about yourself. How you're right, how they're wrong. And then let me go to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I'm so glad that God thinks like I do. Amen. Okay. The drug of Approval. Oh, I need somebody to like me. I need somebody to love me. I need somebody to think well of me. I, the drug of physical attraction. You want to be attractive. And you are the ones that are addicted to the filters on Instagram. You're addicted to the face filter. You got pimples everywhere. But suddenly on social media, they're all gone. They're all gone. You are the duck face people. Quack, quack. You, 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 are, you are the people who are so, you know, you put this image of you that isn't real on, on social media because you want people to like it, think, oh, hot, you know, fire, fire emoji, you know, hands raised, right? Bug out eyes, smooch eyes, oh, man, every day, ah, you're so beautiful. What are you searching for? What are you looking for? You are hooked on drugs, drugs of approval. Some of you are on the drug of achievement. I want to get this job, and then I want to get that house, and then I want to get this job, and I want to get that house. I want to have these kind of kids. I want to have them through this kind of school. I want to get to that point in my life where everybody looks at me and says, how did you do it? That's the drug of achievement, the drug of advancement. Some of you are actually on drugs, physical drugs, not just non-prescription, but prescription drugs. you got so many prescriptions. Every time you feel the slightest little twinge of uncomfortability, you turn to the doctor. You call him up. You got him on speed dial. He's, he's pinned to the top of your phone contacts. 
I need a drug for this. I felt something in the small of my back. I don't know what it is. Doc, give me something. Hooked. There's no shortage of drugs, ladies and gentlemen. And my point to you today is here's diagnosis. We are a nation that will give ourselves over to what feels good. And we will rot our minds. Look at the slippery slope in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hardest of heart. And look at verse 19, big verse here. Verse 19, they have become, what's that word? Callous. They have become. He's talking about non-believers. They have, they started with futility and ignorance and hardness of heart, and they slowly and progressively sunk deeper and deeper, and they became callous. The word callous is interesting. It means the inability to feel shame. Boy, if that's not our culture, I don't know what is. The inability. You, you don't understand that you can get so caught up in something that you no longer even feel shame about it. To the Christians in the room, you're feeling already condemned because I've touched on something that you're struggling with. I, I'm probably not talking to you about this right here because I'm not talking to you about that because I bet that there's a bunch of shame about the things you wish would change in your life. But unbelievers, Paul says, they don't have that. They, they, they are calloused. Like, think about calluses on your hand. You can't feel it anymore. And because they're calloused, they are now giving themselves over to sensuality, what feels good, greedy, and that means they want more and more and more of every kind of impurity. This is the one, this is your brain on drugs. And here's what Paul is saying. There's a slippery slope. There's a trajectory of rejecting Jesus. And my, and, and I, I just want you to hear that, that you, when you reject Jesus, you don't remain the same. You don't remain neutral spiritually. No, you get more and more hardened, more and more darkened, more and more angry at believers. Do you know that some of the most angry atheists on the planet are former Christians? Because they just have such a slippery slope to their spirit, to their mind, to the way they think. Now they hate Christians. They aren't just ambivalent. They absolutely hate Christians. Because your mind doesn't stay the same. You reject God, it gets, on, it gets on the ski slope, and down it goes. Here's what I want you to write down about this. Sin is not just an act, it's an effect. It's not just something that you do. It's something that becomes part of your character-forming reality. It has an effect on you. Why, why, why Paul will talk about this ad nauseum in the Bible about how we follow sin and we become slaves to sin. We'll talk about that in a moment. But sin is not just something you do. Sin is not just something that you do. Sin is something that changes who you are. This is why we got to be so clear about how to get out of sin. Because it's not, it's not neutral. It's, there's a... There's a spiritual magnetism to sin that draws us further and further into darkness, into uh, isolation, loneliness, depression, anxiety, shame, guilt, grief. And then if we just reject and reject and reject, we get to that point where we just don't care anymore. Then we become proud about it. Then we become angry about it. Then we become, yeah, loud about it. Yeah, this is who I am. 
This is what Paul is talking about. You know, there's an Old Testament story that illustrates this perfectly. The guy's name was Samson. And Samson was supposed to be set apart for God. He was supposed to be a Nazarite from birth, meaning that his life was in God's hands. And three things he was supposed to avoid, three things. The fruit of the vine, grapes, wine, any kind of touch of that was off limits. Uh, Contact with dead bodies and no cutting his hair. We always focus on the hair because that's how it all ended with him. But fruit of the vine. Do you know the first thing that Samson did when he came of age? He went down. You read the story. You read, it's amazing. He, he, he comes of age. He starts to make decisions for himself. First thing he does is he goes down to the vineyards of Timnah. What's the Nazarite doing at the vineyards? That's where the grapes are. Not supposed to be there, but he was drawn to it. It was that first decision that led him to the next decision, to find a Philistine woman to love, to marry. He marries the Philistine woman, and, 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 they're tri- and he's tricked by the Philistines, and he's captured by the Philistines, and he, he busts out, and he, he loses his wife, and it's just a big mess for him. What does he do? He finds another one. He's grown callous. He doesn't feel it anymore. The conviction's gone. And he finds another one. Her name was Delilah. Delilah was not the first Philistine in his life. It was the second. And he falls in love, madly in love, falls in infatuation with the Delilah. Because there's no such thing as falling in love. There's only falling in infatuation. And he's infatuated with her. And she's bad news from day one. Samson, <laughs> what's the secret of your great strength? And he tells her three fables, and they're all lies, and she does all three. Like, dude... She's putting cyanide in your coffee. Wake up and smell it. (laughs) Right? Finally, she's like, you don't love me. How can you say you love me? Tell me the secret of your Oh, fine, if you cut my hair. That wasn't the problem. The hair wasn't the problem. The first trip to the vineyards was the problem. This is what's happening in our world. Uh, Societal-wise. Some of you are like, what's happening with this country? I'll tell you what's happening. Charles Darwin's happening. Charles Darwin's happening. Do you know that Charles Darwin's only degree, only educational degree was in theology? He wasn't a scientist. He was a naturalist. He was a naturalist. A naturalist is someone who says smart stuff because they look at things. <laughs> Not exactly a scientist. And he decided to formulate, postulate, postulate a theory that gave society a way to get God out of the picture of our origins. Survival of the fittest, natural selection. Do what you got to do to get ahead, in other words. That's what evolution's all about, friends. That's what evolution's all about. You be you. You step on people. You climb. You, you beat them. Survival of the fittest. And we wonder why we're so divided and so hateful. This has seeped into the culture, seeped into the mindset of our world. Two men picked up on Charles Darwin's theory. One guy's name was Karl Marx, and he turned Darwin's theory of evolution into a societal theory of economics. And his theory in Russia, China, and other nations of this world over the course of 100 years claimed the lives of 120 million people. And now it's being taught into our educational system in America. Watch the deep end. You'll learn about these things. Waters, uh, YouTube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Plug, plug, plug. YouTube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Anyway, 
Karl Marx takes a theory and turns it into an economic theory. And then a guy named Sigmund Freud takes Darwin's teachings and turns it into a psychological theory and teaches a whole generation of people that you can fix yourself from within yourself. And it's a lie. And every drug addict knows it. I can't fix myself. But it didn't matter. It cost lives. It destroyed people. It destroyed generations. How did it end for Charles Darwin? People don't, we hear about the story of Charles Darwin. He's a hero of intellectualism. But do you know the story of his life? From his own writings to friends, he described himself as twisted. An individual that was obsessed with killing animals. Did you know that? That's Charles Darwin. He suffered from depression, agoraphobia, insomnia, vision alterations, hallucinations, vertigo, heart issues, fainting spells, trembling, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, muscle twitches, spasms, tremors, cramps, colics, bloating, headaches, nervous exhaustion, skin blisters, tinnitus, and sensations of impending death. He became incapacitated at age 28. He was an invalid recluse who remained ill continually for the last 43 years of his life. This is your brain on drugs. Another guy, another philosopher that shaped our culture in such amazing ways is Friedrich Nietzsche. The originator of the God is dead mantra. And he postulated a theory that modern man had become so scientifically advanced that we no longer needed the myths of the Bible. We no longer need to surrender to, to the authority of Scripture. Now man must create himself as he sees himself. That's where this stuff comes from. I am what I say I am. I am my creator. I am my originator. And I am my sovereign. And I am my judge. It comes from Friedrich Nietzsche. How did it end for Friedrich Nietzsche? Well, in 1914, before we get to his end, in 1914, the German government, 1914, the German government gave 250,000 copies of Friedrich Nietzsche's work to their army as they fought in World War I. 250,000 copies of Friedrich Nietzsche's Superman philosophy, the super race theology, into the German army. One of those German men in that army was named Adolf Hitler. How did it end? And today these men, Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, are the cornerstones of American education. Friedrich Nietzsche, at the age of 45, suffered a nervous breakdown, entered into a vegetative state. He was catatonic for the last 10 years of his life, and the only person that cared enough to feed him was his Christian mother. That's how it ends. This is your brain on drugs. And like I said, these men have become the cornerstones of American education. And we have pushed this stuff and forced this stuff down the throats of our young people. And we wonder why they take guns to school. And we wonder why they're hooked on drugs. And we wonder why they have anxiety and depression at astronomical levels. Because when you take God out of the equation, it's a slippery slope to hardness of heart and anxiety and fear. But when God is in your life, my friend, when Jesus is the Lord of your heart, you can stand against the flood waters of the culture. You can stand in the promised land. You can stand knowing that no matter what, if God is for you, who can be against you? Be strong and courageous. The Lord your God is with you. 
I'm trying to tell you that you've got to challenge yourself to change your mind around what God says. Intercollegiate College Inter uh, Institute, Intercollegiate College Institute found that America's elite universities now actually turn kids dumber. Even in the elite institutions of our country, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, basic civics and history test scores of incoming freshmen score higher every year than outgoing seniors. Do you know what that means? That means that there are people and parents, and some of you parents, paying $150,000 for four years of making your kids stupid. <laughs> what should I do, Pastor? Get them out. Get them out or get them into engineering, one of those schools, because they don't talk about that junk. Put them in a trade school. You know what we need in this country? We need plumbers. You know, I heard that a plumber makes $150,000 a year with just a few years of experience. Man, I'll take care of your crap for that much money a year. Come on, somebody. That doesn't sound so bad. We, we need mechanics, and we need people who know how to do things, not just think stupid things. Watch yourself. And I just kind of get up, I just kind of get mad because this is Christians, Christians weep about the, Christians weep about the, about the current culture, but, but they're the ones contributing to it by paying for their kids to become idiots. Well, they want to. So what? Uh, Oh, they'll be brokenhearted if I say no. So what? So what? I'll break their hearts and save their souls. I'm fighting, man. I'm fighting this battle because it's a real battle. We're in spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I'm not angry at Harvard. I'm not angry at Yale. I'm not angry at unbelievers. They're doing what they're supposed to do. I'm angry at the church that sides with them. I'm angry at the church that follows them. We are not of this world. We march to the beat of a heavenly drummer named Jesus. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. We got to fight. I get mad when you pay all kinds of money for your kids to go to these schools, but you don't give to the church. You don't tithe. You have no problem with the college bill. You have a huge problem with the 10% number. Something's wrong. Your priorities are jacked up. You pay $400 for a season of hockey thinking your kid's gonna be the next Wayne Gretzky. He's not. <laughs> Put God first financially. My wife and I have tithed every year, 10% off the top, not after taxes, off the top, because I put God before my government. And then I get to tell the government, stick it. You can only tax me 10% less than what I actually made this year. The first tenth went to God. All three of my kids, all three of my kids, I don't like to brag about my kids because it's not about that, but all three of them serve the Lord. My, my daughter serves the Lord in our Florida campus and activate. My son does the lights and the sound. My, my, my third son, he needs a lot of prayer, but, but the other day he told me he wants to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't get that in the educational systems of this country. 
We're paying more to become stupider. And then you have people with MDs publishing articles, groundbreaking articles like this at healthline.com. Let's put that up on the screen. Put it on the screen clearly. Can men get pregnant? And the answer is yes. <laughs> and the person who writes it is an MD. This is what Romans chapter 1 talks about. In their thinking, they became fools. Pastor, are you transphobic? Yes. <laughs> I am. Just like Dave Chappelle. It's kind of ironic that the only two people that you'll hear truth from is Dave Chappelle and your local Bible preaching pastor. <laughs> kind of weird. Point number two, this is your brain set free in Christ. Ephesians 4.20. But that's not the way you learned in Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ. Notice the lack of word between learned and Christ in that text. That's not the way you learned Christ. That's not who you are, Christian. Understand that, that there's, there's a learning about Christ and then there's a learning Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. These prepositions are important. Because here's what I want you to write down. Discipleship is not learning facts about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. It's knowing him. Christianity is not learning facts. Who cares if you can tell me the books of the Bible in order? Who cares? Who cares if you know what commandment number six is? I don't care if you know what the, th the seventh plague on Egypt was. I don't care. I don't even know. I, I, if I need to, I could look it up. But I'm not in the business of knowing facts about the Bible or facts about God. I'm interested in knowing God, knowing Him. I got a wife, and uh, I could take a college course on my wife and still not know her as well as 23 years of, 21 years of marriage has taught me about her. I don't know her height, and I don't ask her weight. That's why I'm alive, friends. <laughs> but I know her looks. I don't even have to see the mouth. I just see the eyes. I'm like, ooh, she's mad. <laughs> Run for your life. Oh, she's in a good mood today. Hi, honey. <laughs> I know her because I've spent time with her. Oh, pastor, I want my life to change. I want my life to change. I don't like the things that I do. I don't like what I'm doing. Have you spent time with Jesus? Jesus said, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Abide means to stay, to remain. You got to get away from all the world. You got to get away from your phone, your devices. You got to get away and get alone with Jesus. That's number one. Number two, you got to get to church every weekend. It's got to be a non-negotiable. I'm going to church. It doesn't matter who's preaching. It doesn't matter where the preacher is. I'm in the house of God with God's people here in God's word, and it changes me. Number three, you got to get in a small group, life group, some way of getting into a community where you face people and you talk about all the things that are going on in your life, and they talk about things going in you in their life, and you pray for each other. And you got somebody to lay hands on you. You got somebody who will pray for you. You get somebody that you can talk about what's going on that's wrong, and they can help you. 
And that's what the body of Christ is. When you are in small group, when you are in life group, you are spending time with Jesus. And you got to serve. you got to put your hand to the plow. you got to help us reach people. You want to build your life in Christ? Serve Christ. Serve him. It will build your faith. It will build your spirit. It will build your, 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 your heart up in Christ. Verse 22, he says, this is what you learn, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through, uh, next two words, everybody, deceitful desires. I love that phrase because it teaches us that our desires, what we want, is lying to us. Every one of us has deceitful desires. It's not that you just want it. It's that what, there's a fleshly, there's an evil part of you that wants to destroy you. Anybody in here knows this because you say, sometimes I feel like I'm my own worst enemy. Yes. Maybe not the worst, but one of the three. The world, the flesh, and the devil. He's always, Paul, the apostle, says, who will save me from this body of death? Who will change me? I need Jesus to change me. I got things that I want that I know if I get, I'm going to hurt myself or other people. I'm going to do something stupid. This is why God doesn't let you win the lottery, even though you pray and pray and pray. This is why God doesn't give you that high-paying job, because he knows if you get that high-paying job, he's gonna, that high-paying job is going to take you right out of the church. Sometimes the cancer is God's tool to bring you close to him. Otherwise, you'd never bow the knee. This is, this is the truth of the scriptures, that God wants to change what you want. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds, verse uh, 24, and to put on the new self. So we're taking off, we're putting on. How do I do that? To spend time with Christ. Spend time in his word. Spend time with his people. Spend time in his ministry. These things will change. These things will transform over the course of a decade, two decades, three decades. God is not in the business of minute discipleship. There's minute rice. There's no such thing as minute discipleship. <laughs> Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Notice there's a trajectory. There's no neutrality. You either give yourselves to sin and you become more and more enslaved to it and callous to it and full of no shame, or you give yourselves to God and he leads you further and further into righteous living which provides peace. James chapter 3, a harvest of righteousness that results in peace. Point number three, this is your life in Christ. So you set your heart and your mind on Christ. You spend time in his word. You spend time with his church. You spend time in small group. You spend time doing the things that you, that you know are good in the word of God. Are you in the word of God? A 2009 study for, um, by the Center for Biblical Engagement issued a report that concluded that people who read their Bible four days a week, just four out of the seven days a week, just four days, experienced the following benefits. A 57% lower chance of getting drunk that week. And a 68% lower chance of sex outside of marriage or sexual immorality. A 61% lower chance of 
engaging in pornography, a 74% lower chance of gambling and other addictions. In other words, just four doses of the Bible a week can keep your life free from the enslavement to deceitful desires. I don't understand the Bible because you don't read it. The more you read it, the more you understand it. The scripture talks about the unfolding of your word. The unfolding of your word brings understanding. What does that mean, to unfold? Anybody ever get an Amazon package? I love those things. That's an addiction I can get on board with, man. Shows up at the door, you're like, ooh, what is it? Even if I have to buy five things, I'll, I'll put them in five different orders because I want to see five boxes show up in my house. Christmas. And what do you do? You shh, unfold it. It's not the first, it's not the cut that unveil, unveils it. You got to cut it and then you got to open it and open the other flap and then the packaging and then the, the little welcome card from whoever sold it. You throw that thing away. You're like, ah, what is that thing? That's what you do with the Word. Here's what you do with the Word. Are you ready? This is what you do with the Word. Do this this week. Four times. Four days. Ah. Ooh. Okay. Yes. Okay. Get yourself a big fat Bible like this. It's a, it's a study Bible. And then you go, oh, what's this book about? So then you go to the very beginning of the book and you get all these introductory materials so that you can know what the book is about. It's all right there. If I can get to it. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Right here, the introduction to, to 1 Corinthians. It's right, it's right there. It tells me the author, the date, when it was written, the purpose, why was this book written, what was the conditions to whom it was written, so that I can start to understand, oh, that's what this book is about. Then I, make tra then I can make transitions to my time in my life. Anyway, this is your life in Christ. First, let truth inhabit you. You got to get the truth in you so that you can speak the truth out of you. Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be truthful, because you belong to each other. When you lie, you partner with Satan. Because Jesus said he's the father of lies. I don't want him on my team. I don't want to be on his team. If you want to be on the team Jesus, you get, the, you get the truth out of you. Number two, don't let anger enslave you. Be angry, do not sin. It's okay to be angry. Don't sin in your anger. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. There's two actual Greek words that are different between the first, be angry, and the second, your anger in this text. The first anger means to just have this passionate uh, upset about something. The second one is to have a vindictive attitude about it. So you can, you can go to bed angry, but don't go to bed thinking in your bed about how am I going to get them? How am I going to get them? <laughs> no, you don't want to go to bed like that. Don't let anger enslave you because it becomes an... And, oh, and if you do that, you give the devil an opportunity in your life. Number three, third, don't let greed control you. Let the thief no longer steal. Well, I don't steal. Do you show up late at work? That's stealing. Do you take hour and a half lunch breaks when you have a half an hour? That's stealing. Work hard. And don't let work become this thing that's just about you getting ahead. It's about you having stuff that you can share with others. The goal of Christian work 
is to become a giver, not a taker. Don't let greed control you. Fourth, let encouragement come out of you. He says, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but just what is good for building up. Somebody say build up. Are you building people up with your words or are you tearing them down? I heard someone say it like this. Everybody's an elevator. You're either punching a lower number or you're punching a higher number in their lives that day. You're either speaking life into your kids or you're speaking fear, anxiety, and worry into them. You're either speaking life into your spouse or you're speaking fear, worry, and anxiety. You're either speaking to your friends and an occur. I see in you great things. Don't you give up. Good things are ahead. God is for you. I believe in you. Instead of how could you do that? How are you stupid? What's wrong with you? He's how, how dare you? Like, we're gonna, what are you going to do? It's your choice. Then verse 30, I love verse 30. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I love that because when, when, we, when we don't put on Christ, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Notice it doesn't say don't anger the Holy Spirit. See, that, no, God's not angry with you, but he will grieve over you. He grieves because he's a loving father and he knows what's good for you and he wants it to go well with you. Don't grieve your father. What a better way to look at that temptation that if you fall through with a sin, it's not that God's going to say, I hate you. He's going to say, oh, you did it again. I'm so sad. I love you too much for you to do that junk. Then verse 31, let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all mouths. These are all spirits. I thought about the progression, the slippery slope of sin, it leads to these things, these bitter things, holding a grudge, wrath and anger, wanting to get somebody back, slander. Mm, that's a Facebook post right there. Slander, cutting someone down who's not around. And then it's malice, that's evil intent toward others. And then... That's a heavy list. From verse 25 to verse 31, how many of that's a heavy list of things that we can't be part of? Let's be honest, some of us are still struggling with some of those things that we can't be part of. So here's what we do. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And then this one, this one's a big one. This one's a big one forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I can't forgive them, Pastor. Oh, 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 oh. Did God forgive you? Well, yes, but no, 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 no. Did God forgive you? Hey, how about this question? Have others forgiven you? You know, at some point we got to stop throwing stones. we to stop trying to get people and ask God to forgive us so that we can forgive others. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They didn't ask for... Did you ask forgiveness for everything you've ever done? Everything? I guarantee you haven't. And yet God forgave you that way. As he forgave you, you forgive others. The largest prison in America is in Louisiana. It's called Angola Prison. In the early part of the 1900s, it's called the Alcatraz of the South. It was brutal. It housed the worst inmates in American history. 
something like 80% of the inmates were in there for life and double life. The wardens would come in and literally treat them like slaves, working them to exhaustion, encouraging fights amongst the population to weed out members of the community by death, force them to work in the fields for hours and days straight with no water and no food, many of them dying while they're working. It was the most brutal, hideous place on this nation to be, Angola prison. The 1940s, the state took it over entirely and it only became worse. The wardens became worse and more evil and abusive to the, to the prisoners. And in 1995, a guy by the name of Burl Kane took over as warden of the prison. And his first order of business was to bring the Bible into the prison. So he contacted the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and asked them if they wouldn't mind setting up an education and ordination program for the prisoners. And they did. And when the start of the program, the, the ministers were able to turn, to thou, turn thousands of their imprisoned brothers to Jesus. And a very popular preacher who if I named him, you would know him. He went to that prison later on, about eight years later, went through the, cor the, the corners of that prison and he was shocked at the number of Bibles in the prison cells and the number of crosses on the walls and the violence virtually gone from the prison. And he sat in the cell with one inmate who was holding his Bible and he held it up to the preacher. He said, listen, I think that maybe, maybe if I had this book in my classroom, I wouldn't be sitting with this book in this cell right now. This word can change your life, but you gotta come out of this world you got to reject it whole scale and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Sermon in a sentence, make the commitment to give your mind to God. Let him shape it and renew it so that you can grow in Christ and love his family. Our nation has virtually abandoned any respect for this word. This place that you're in right now at all of our locations, this is the last stop for truth in this culture. I'm telling you right now. The educational system, the corporate system, the social media giants, the government, the news media, they're all fighting like hell to keep you away from the truth. Because their father, the devil, knows that if you get the truth, it'll set you free. I'm asking you to let go of that way of life and say yes to Jesus instead.